Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. Hi, my name is Scott, and today's scripture reading is from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 21 through 9, verse 7. They will wander through the land, dejected and hungry. When they are famished, they will become enraged, and looking upward will curse their king and their god. They will look toward the earth and see only distress, darkness, and the gloom of affliction, and they will be driven into thick darkness. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times, when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to the Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing the spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and rod of their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and bloodied garment of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast, and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. This is the the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, if you haven't already, take your copy of the scriptures and turn to Isaiah chapter 9. We'll be uh, spending time there, but we'll get there in a minute or two or ten. Um, I want to start off with a word of prayer, though, to continue this posture of worship and just praise the God who was, who is, and who is to come. So, Father, Son, and Spirit, we are so aware of your presence, and we are so thankful for your word. Uh, We are thankful, Lord, that you did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. We are thankful that you emptied yourself, that you humbled yourself. And in this Advent season, we remember that, that you came as a man. And uh, not just any man, the the man of God. And so, Father, I pray right now that as we open your word and we continue to look at um, peace and hope and love and joy, that um, it would just be an encouragement. Holy Spirit, you are aware of all of our thoughts right now. You were aware of the last week that we all just had individually. And you are aware of the lies and that we are believing and the fear that we have. And so, Spirit, right now, I just ask that in your presence, you would cast out fear. You would cast out lies. And you would usher in the new kingdom and the new humanity of love, of peace, of hope in our hearts, in our minds, in our relationships. We are so grateful for your word and for who you are and that you are the God who was, the God who is, and the God who is to come. 
We pray all these things in your son's name and by the power of the spirit. And all God's people said, amen. Uh, Richard Bauckham, in his book, Hope Against Hope, has this quote. And he says this, to be a Christian, a person of faith, is to live as a person for whom God's future shapes the present. To be a Christian, a person of faith, also notice the continual idea of person of faith, not a person who had faith at one point and asked Jesus into a heart, but a person whose life is characterized by faith, a Christian, is to be a type of person to live, as a, to live for whom God's future shapes the present. Okay, another way to say this is a scholar, Jonathan Martin, in his book called Prototype, says this, when Jesus gives us his spirit, we become people from the future. When Jesus gives, gives us the spirit, we become people from the future. Now, for some of us, that might be like weird. Like, are we time traveling? Is this back to the future? What's going on? What do I mean by this? Well, this is the idea behind what Tom explained last week with these, with these idea of the circles and the kingdom of heaven. And what does it mean that God's future shapes our present? What does it mean that when we get the spirit of God, we actually live as people from the future? Let's review from last week. If you remember, uh, Genesis 1 and 2, God created the heavens and the earth. God created, and, and this first circle represents just that, heaven and earth together as one. It was as it should be. It was peace. It was perfection. It was no broken relationships, no sin, no disease, no sickness. God with his people in his place. They were naked and unashamed. There was no sin. There was nothing. It was beautiful. And it wasn't just like, you know, they were flying around floating either like he said hey you have dominion and you can rule and you can like create and you can make art and sport and cities and families and like just go for it we are going to do this together that is genesis 1 and 2 it is perfection it is wholeness it is completeness it is peace then we get to genesis 3 not very long later and what happens is the separation of heaven and earth god uh, and God and his kingdom, his domain, was, is separated from man and our kingdom and our domain. Why? Because we decided that we thought we knew it was best. So we decided to take matters into our own hands. So we decided to define good and evil. And so there was a separation, right? Adam and Eve were literally cast out of the garden, out of the presence of God. And so from then on, there was this separation. Now, the rest of the biblical story is talking about how do we get those two circles, if heaven's represented by the top circle and earth represented by the bottom circle, how do we get those two circles back together? What's it gonna take to bring those two circles back together, to bring God's rule, God's reign, God's kingdom of love, of peace, of joy, of selflessness, how is that going to interact with the world that we know it, which is ruled by the prince of the power of the air, the enemy, the accuser, the liar, the, the, the devil, and sin and all its broken relationships? Well, the scriptures talk about a, a future where that will happen. And so that's what the last circle is, just the last circle. Two, nope, 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 back one, back one. Bingo, right there. The scriptures talk about, if you remember the prophets, and you might have heard this phrase, in the last days, or in those days, or there will be a day when. What the, what the prophet, what the, the Pentateuch, the prophets, and the writings, what they all talk about is this future day when heaven and earth will be back together, right? When God's presence will come back, his kingdom will come back, and evil will be expelled, and this will be the perfect, it's called the day of the Lord also, in the last days, in the day of the Lord. This will be the glorious day when God rules again supreme. What they didn't expect was this in-between time, next slide, this in-between time where heaven would partially come to earth, but not fully. Where, where God's kingdom would partially come to earth but not fully come to earth and expel 
evil entirely. And where do we get this story? It's in the story of Jesus, right? So, so that means that because Jesus brought in this kind of like this vertical Venn diagram of heaven and earth meeting one, and what was Jesus' main message in the Gospels? Repent and believe the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven that it was once at one point separated in God's presence and God's kingdom, it's now drawing near. This is why scholars call it these, this tension of the already, not yet. We already have the kingdom of heaven and all its promises and its glory and its peace and its patience, but we don't yet have it because we're still wrestling with the curse of sin. We're still wrestling with broken relationships. This is why when those of us who are in Christ become people of the future, because if you think about that Venn diagram, where is the trajectory of it going? Well, it's going to the future when God will come again, Jesus will return, and all evil will be done away with, and we will be living fully with each other and with God. It's a glorious day. So when we are in Christ, you kind of enter into that middle ground of the Venn diagram right there. As a Christian, you're simultaneously in the world, in the earth, ruled by the prince of the power of the air, but you're also at the same time simultaneously a new believer. You're a new human. You have a new heart. You, at one point, you, you know, struggle with love and patience, but at another point, you know that you're given love and patience by the Holy Spirit inside of you, so you cultivate that. We become people of the future, and what is this future? It's a future where uh, God's kingdom will reign. It's a future where God's presence isn't just in certain people in certain places, but it's a, a future where God's presence reigns, it's everywhere. It's a future where there's gonna be no more darkness, there's gonna be no more sickness, there's gonna be no more tears, no more pain. Why? Because the former things have passed away. You know this passage from Revelation. The former things have passed away. What's he talking about? He's talking about that bottom, the rule of the enemy is going to pass away. New things have come. One scholar says the fruit of the Spirit will be the average descriptor of every single person. I love that. You think of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. Imagine that those were true, just like the average description of every single person. That's the future. That's when God's kingdom will come again. But guess what? That's also true of us right now when we are in Christ. You know, do you believe that the fruit of the Spirit, all, that entire list, it can be true of you? Or does it seem impossible? Does it seem like, oh man, I, I can't do that. I, I, I can't have true peace what this is saying is, is what, what this theology, what these uh, uh, scholars are saying about we become people of the future is that the reality of eternity is, tr is true of us right now. The reality of what is to come is true of us right now. And this is why we call it Advent, right? Because the first coming together of these circles was the first Advent when Jesus brought this kingdom among us. And we're waiting for the second Advent when these two circles are gonna intersect and that means that evil will be expelled and the reign and the rule of God and his love and his peace will be permeating every nook and cranny of the entire world. So we, the first advent was Jesus' coming and the second advent we wait for it in this tension. In this tension of I, I should be a person filled with peace and love and hope and joy because I'm promised that but I also know that sometimes in life I don't have that and it's difficult to cultivate that and there's still just a lot of brokenness and I'm tired of fighting sin and we live in this tension. Of, of all people, Christians should be the most uh, uh, uncomfortable with the, thi the way things are in the world because we know that the way things should be. And we know that it's going to happen. So the question is, are you gonna listen to the Spirit and enter into that kingdom and bring that future and that eternity aspect now or are you gonna turn off your ear to the Spirit? 
and do what caused the first separation of the circles and take matters into your own hands, defining good and evil on your own terms. Advent means arrival, and that's what this season is. It's not just an arrival of Jesus' being born in a manger. It's also waiting for the expectant arrival of the future, and we get to live in the middle of those two things. Each week, we're highlighting a different aspect of Advent that the church... um, tradition calendar sorry the church tradition has uh, viewed and celebrated since the dawn of the church really and it's it's a uh, hope was last week peace is this week love is next week and then joy will be the final uh, Christmas Eve service um, so today we're going to be focusing on peace peace world peace no I'm just kidding uh, every it's no question that everybody wants peace in their lives right everybody wants peace in their lives every I, I googled last week I googled inner peace, because like inner peace is like a, you know, a thing that everybody wants in their lives, and uh, an, o- an Oprah article, an article on Oprah's website came up, and I read it, and it was just, it was kind of sad. I was going to say it's hilarious, but it was kind of sad, because it just, we, we have this idea of what peace is, and it's no question, everybody wants peace. Christians, non-Christians, everybody's just like, can I just have some peace in this world? Um, the problem w- with the desire of peace and especially with Christians, is because there's a, there's a misdefinition, there's an incorrect definition of what peace is. Most people, if you were to ask people what peace is, would say it's this idea of tranquility, right? You might think of a day at the spa, or you might think of like, oh, no people around me, or you might think of like, oh, I don't have to go to work, or I can just get rid of the kids or the dogs or whatever it is. Like, that idea is kind of what we think peace is. We have this idea of inner peace in your hearts and your minds, We have this idea of relational peace in your relationships, like nobody's fighting anymore. And then we have this idea of like national peace or world peace or like where everybody is just getting along. And the interesting thing about that definition of peace is what does that definition of peace require? That requires, if if, if that's your definition of peace, that requires that you get your own way in everything, right? If you think about that definition of peace, what does that require? You being able to control every situation and every circumstance in your life. If you think about peace as being like, okay, well, I just won't have to work anymore or I won't have to be around these people anymore, what does that require? You to be able to control everything in your, and everybody in your life. It's basically the equivalent of saying, if everything would just go how I want it to go, if everybody would just do exactly what I tell them to do and not ask any questions, then I'd have the ironic thing about that type of peace is it actually requires conflict. Think about um, nations throughout history. Uh, Pax Romana was a uh, phrase that was used in the Roman era, and it's literally Roman peace. 200 years of what historians call like some of the greatest peace ever uh, brought about by a civilization. Well, what did Rome have to do in order to get that peace? They had to destroy. They had to kill. They had to dominate. They had to take people from their homes. They had to enslave people. They had to, I mean, you talk about peace. That if, if we have a definition of peace as, the, as only the absence of conflict, the ironic thing is that it requires conflict for you to get that. Obviously, that's a nation back in, you know, a couple thousand years ago, but in the same way, for us internally, if we have this definition of peace, then we ourselves have to be able to control everything and everybody in our lives. Newsflash, we can't control everything and everybody in our lives. So then this idea of peace becomes distant, right? 
Because it's like, oh, well, if I could just do this thing, then I'll get peace. Well, we can't do this thing, and so therefore peace becomes distant. And as Christians, we become confused because we should have peace. We're, we worship a God of peace. Jesus himself, as Paul says in Ephesians, Jesus is our peace. So then we are in this world of like, well, I don't have that, that tranquility, that calmness. My circumstances are chaotic right now, and I think that life, I'm just barely keeping my head above the surface, so I must not have peace. So therefore, I must not be following God right. I must not have enough faith. And, and we, you, you feel this tension. I felt it before, and I know that a lot of people have felt this tension before. All because that definition of peace is not a biblical definition of peace. So, next question, what is a biblical definition of peace? Great question. I'm glad you asked. <clears throat> um, this is going to be a, a little trick question, but I'm going to start with a little example, uh, and then we're going to look at biblical examples, and then we're going to get to Isaiah 9. Um, I'm going to put two pictures up on the screen, and these two pictures uh, I've taught this before and I've asked so I know the answer. If I were to ask you which one of these is peace, 10 times out of 10 and all the students I've taught this to and all that stuff, they say, oh, well, the picture of the canoe, that's peaceful. Oh, it's just so peaceful. Like, imagine what you would smell standing there. Imagine what you would hear standing there. Quiet, you know, no cell phones, no anybody else or whatever. Now, imagine you're in the setting of the second picture, the motorcycles racing around a curb. What would you hear? It would be loud. It would probably be really hot. It looks like there's palm trees in the background, so it would be a tropical climate. You'd probably be walking around. Your feet would be sore because you've been walking all day. Like, it just doesn't seem like peace, right? The picture of the canoe does not represent bi biblical peace. The picture of the motorcycles and the people racing on the motorcycles represents biblical peace. Here's how that is true. Here's what I mean. The idea of biblical peace is this concept of wholeness, of completeness, or as things functioning as they were designed to function. As people living as they were designed to live. As things functioning as they were designed to function. Now, back to this picture. Is the canoe functioning how it was designed to function? No. Why? It's not on the water. It's designed to be on the water. It's designed to have people in it, you know, with a paddle, like paddling to the next whatever, and it's not doing that. I know it's like a trick question, so ha, I gotcha. But um, th the canoe is not designed, it's not functioning how it was designed to function. Therefore, it is not biblical peace. The motorcycles, on the other hand, they're designing exactly how they're designed to function, barring there's no accident, but they're, they're, all the motors are running, the people are sitting on them, racing. I don't know anything about motorcycles, um, but they're racing, and everything is designing as it was Everything is functioning and living as it was designed to function and live. This is the idea of biblical peace, which means what? Peace is therefore not determined by your circumstances, period. The circumstances of the motorcycles are you're hot and sweaty, your feet might be hurting, it's loud, there's, you can smell gasoline, I don't know. That doesn't seem peaceful to our definition, but it is biblical peace because everything is functioning how it was designed to function. On the other hand, the circumstances of the canoe seem like it would be peaceful, but it, it's not because nothing is, there's nothing happening. Nothing's doing what it was designed to do. You can get off this uh, slide now to the, to the peace slide. So the idea of biblical peace is this idea of wholeness, of completeness, of things working together as they were designed to work. Let me give you a few biblical examples. I'm just gonna rattle off a list uh, here. So um, Job 5, 24. Uh, Job is talking and he says that your tents, you, you will know that your tents are peace. The Hebrew word is shalom. 
You, know, you will know that your tense are peace when there's nothing missing from your tense. So the idea that if there's nothing missing from your tense, if it's whole, if it's complete, if everything is doing and designed as it was, uh, it was, it was designed to be functioning and, and de- designed to do, then you would have peace. Another example, 1 Kings 9.25, Solomon's finishing the temple up. And it says that when he put the last brick in the temple, the temple was peace. The temple was shalom. Why? The temple was finally whole. It was complete. It was functioning and doing what it was designed to do. And right after that, the spirit of the Lord, or the the presence of the Lord descended, and it was beautiful. When Solomon finished the temple, he brought peace to the temple. Another one in Joshua. Joshua was commanded to build an altar out of a peace stone, a shalom stone, a stone without blemish, a stone that would complete the altar all entirely. Proverbs 16 talks about a reconciling of relationships, bringing peace. When two people reconcile a relationship, there is peace. There is shalom. Uh, Exodus 22. Um, if you, you know, had a, a bull or an animal or a cow at that time and they got out of your fence and they trampled some crops of your neighbors and then your neighbors came over and they're like, hey, you know, you, your animal got out, you trampled, trampled my crops. You were supposed to make peace with them. How did you make peace with them? Well, the peace offering, and what you would do is you would pay them for those crops, and then you would actually plant the seed. So what you're doing is you're bringing back wholeness. You're bringing back this, back this idea of completeness. In the New Testament, Romans, uh, John 14, J- Jesus says, peace I leave you, my peace I give you. Right after that, what happened to the disciples when Jesus ascended? They were persecuted. They were put in jail. They were beaten, and they were murdered. That's not peace from this world. If our peace is circumstantial, then Jesus must have lied or been wrong. And I don't think Jesus lied or was wrong. He gives them a peace, a wholeness, a completeness to live as people for whom God's future influences and gives them the ability to live in the present. Romans 5.1, after we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. What type of peace is that? That's relational peace. That's wholeness. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a reconciling of relationships. And then Ephesians 2, we're gonna get back to Ephesians 2 later, but uh, Paul says that Jesus is our peace. And this is in the context of Paul talking about two different groups of people that don't like each other, Jew and Gentile. And he said that Jesus is our peace and he broke down the dividing wall, thereby creating peace when he took the two and made them one. What is peace? It's wholeness, it's completeness, it's people living with other people how they were supposed to and designed to and created to live. It's people living selflessly for each other. It's people living, putting the needs of others above the needs of the self. It's people living with hope, with an expectant hope, trusting God's promises of the past, looking forward to God's promises that were promised to us for the future. And what community in the world actually therefore has peace. It's the church. The church is the only community that has true biblical peace because the church has been persecuted. If you look at church history, the church has been persecuted every single generation. We are the minority here where we don't get persecuted for being a believer. But every single generation of of church and church history has been persecuted at one point or another. And so therefore, people think like, oh, well, you guys don't have peace because you don't have this tranquility. You don't have this inner peace. You don't have relational peace. It's like, no, 
the idea of biblical peace is completeness, is wholeness, is fulfillment, is doing and living how you were designed to, to do and live. So all that, our, our call to peace that Jesus gives us, that Paul gives us, that Isaiah, we're going to see in a second, Isaiah gives us, our call to peace is not just to remove conflict. Does it involve the removal of conflict? Yes, absolutely. But, re, but, in, but on top of that, it's to restore wholeness to our lives, to our relationships, and to our world. We are called to bring peace to our lives, to our relationships, and to the world. To live, as we mentioned earlier, as though the future shapes our present. And this is why Isaiah 9, in particular, is a perfect passage for today. So if you're in Isaiah 9, we're going to get there in a second, a little bit of context and background, because Isaiah 9 comes after chapters 1 through 8, so we don't want to just jump in uh, the middle um, with no context. Isaiah's uh, prophesying against this king, King Ahaz, who was really, really bad, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And he is saying, he has a lot of um, metaphor and imagery, especially one of this idea of a tree. Israel is, Isaiah depicts Israel as this huge tree that an ax comes down and chops it down to the ground. And then he says that that person who chops it to the ground is gonna be the nation of Syria. Then right after that, it's gonna be the nation of Babylon. Basically what Isaiah is saying is, you guys are done for. You guys are absolutely done for. And the reason is, is because of their greed. They weren't listening to the word of the Lord. They were uh, manipulating situations. They were using their uh, status as something to be exploited. And Isaiah's like, look, this is gonna happen. Assyria's gonna come down and Babylon's gonna come down. But there will be hope. Because out of this image of a stump, imagine the tree is chopped down. There's a stump there and it's dead and it's burnt down to the ground. Isaiah says there's going to be hope because a little tiny shoot, a little stem, a little branch is going to come out of that stump. And then that's going to go and grow into a tree. And that tree is going to bear fruit. And all the nations are going to be able to sit under that tree's shade and they're going to be able to eat the fruit of that tree. And he calls it the stem of Jesse, the root of Jesse in Isaiah 11. And he said from this root, from this stem, from the line of, of Jesse, whose son, is, if, you, if you know, is King David, will come this life, this source of life that will bring wholeness. It will bring relational wholeness. It will bring prosperity. It will bring hope. So Isaiah has this weird balance of like really, really dark, destructive language, like you guys are going to hell in a handbasket, and this beautiful, amazing hope of what can and could be. And in the middle of that, he's kind of starting it all, we get to the end of chapter eight, which was read earlier. And if you look at, look at Isaiah chapter eight, verse 21 and 22, this is a little picture of the darkness that Isaiah describes. He says this, they will wander, this is um, the Israelites, they will wander through the land, dejected and hungry. When they are famished, they will become angry, they'll become enraged. And looking upward, they will curse their king and their God, verse 22. They will look to the earth, they'll only see distress, darkness, and the gloom of affliction, and they will be driven into thick darkness. How's that for a message on hope and peace? You have these people looking down on the ground. Notice where their eyes are looking. They're looking to the earth, and they see darkness and gloom. Where are they not looking? Up to the skies. We use this cadence a lot of like, let's lift our eyes up. Every Sunday morning, we come here to lift our eyes up. The reason is because when you lift your eyes up, you see hope. You see, cr you see the cross. You see that next, the next, uh, you see the, the, the kingdom of heaven coming down to the kingdom of earth. He keeps going. Chapter nine, uh, let's go to verse two. The people walking in darkness 
remember, uh, chapter 8, 21 and 22, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. Who produced this darkness? Not the Israelites, not the people. Something, or rather someone else produced this darkness. And it was in their darkness that the light shone brightest. He keeps going, verse three. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people, they've rejoiced. They've rejoiced before you, Lord, as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. Verse four, you've shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressors, just as you did on the day of Midian. Okay, a few things about verse four. If you remember, one of Jesus' most famous phrases is, my yoke is easy. And here he says that uh, uh, the Lord, Yahweh, is going to shatter their oppressive yoke. Um, the oppressive yoke was one in which the, another nation would come in and literally enslave them, and it was hard. And you think of uh, Israel under Egypt, under Pharaoh, and how he just like, gave them more and more tasks and more and more tasks, and he didn't provide for them any help whatsoever. That's an oppressive yoke. Now, what Jesus says in Matthew, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but what Jesus says in Matthew is that he also gives us a yoke. So he doesn't take off the yoke completely and let us roam freely and just do whatever we want. He actually gives us a yoke to guide us and to lead us, but he does it, and his yoke is one that is, one that is easy and one that is light. And I, he, he for sure, when he's talking about that in Matthew, he for sure is thinking of this passage uh, in Isaiah uh, 9, verse 4. And then he says this at the end of Isaiah 9, verse 4, just as you did on the day of Midian. So the author right here just is recalling a story from earlier in the Bible, the day of Midian. Now, the first time I read this, I kind of glazed over it, and I was like, okay, yeah, cool, day of Midian, awesome, next verse, get to the the good part, you know. Um, But then looking back, I was like, why didn't he say the day of the Exodus, right? Like, I feel like if you're going to talk about God's power and breaking the yoke of the oppressor, you would talk about the Exodus. When Moses came into Egypt and he said, let my people go, and Pharaoh's like, no way. And then he's like, okay, well then, fine. The 10 plagues, the, the Red Sea, the uh, wilderness generation, all that stuff. So he says, instead, this day of Midian. Now, we're not going to go there right now, but in Judges, v- chapter 6 and 7, there's this judge, and his name's Gideon. You can remember that Gideon at Midian. That's how I always remember it. Gideon was at Midian. And, uh, well, he defeated the Midian, whatever. There's this judge named Gideon, and if you remember, he tests God a few times. God's like, hey, I'm gonna use you to uh, free the Israelites from the Midianites, and they're really bad. And Gideon's like, are you sure? Let me put out this, like, wool fleece. And there was a few tests, and it was kind of cool. You can read that in Judges 6. But then in Judges 7, if you remember, Gideon has 32,000 men. The Lord's like, that's too many men. I want you to have less men so that I get the glory and the power and not the warriors. So it goes down to 10,000 men. Gideon's like, all right, good now. The Lord's like, nope, not 10,000 men. I want less men so that I get the glory and power and it can't be like given to, to you guys. So then it goes down to, what was it, 300 men. Yeah, 300 men get down around this camp and they surround the camp of Midian in the middle of the night and they just blow trumpets and they smash some pots and pans onto the ground and they defeat the Midianites. And everybody, everybody was like, that's from the Lord. There's no way that that could have been by the strength and the power of man. 
So that context is the context when Isaiah says, you uh, defeated the oppressor on the day of Midian. And the reason he says that is look at verse six. First three words of verse six, for a child. Let's just stop right there. The battle of Midian was a battle where the weak, the powerless, the people who for sure were not gonna win the battle, through the strength of the Lord and because of the Lord, defeated the enemy. Now Isaiah says, for a child. Another translation for this word is a toddler. A toddler will be given to us, not a king. He doesn't say a king here. We know it's the king, right? We know it's a king, but he does not say king here. He says a toddler is gonna be given to us. A child, what power does a toddler have compared to the, the oppressive world that we live in? Compared to the enemy? Compared to the prince of the power of the air? We have a toddler in this context compared to Assyria, compared to Babylon, a kid, little boy. God's kingdom is not this kingdom. The wisdom of God is foolishness to man. That's what this is saying. The, day, the reason he brought up the day of Midian is because it was just like this completely upside down victory and now he's saying a child's gonna be born to us and then we know the rest but let's keep going. Verse six, a son will be given to us and what's gonna happen? The government will be on his shoulders. When was the last time you saw a toddler pick something up on his shoulders? Probably, you know, recently if, you have, if you're around toddlers but also a, an entire government, an entire dominion, an entire nation is gonna rest on this toddler's shoulders. This is not logical in our minds. This is obviously from a different world, a different kingdom, the kingdom where the way up is down. The first will be last and the last will be first. This is beautiful. What's his name? Verse six, middle of verse six. He will be named Wonderful Counselor. This kid is going to have unfailing wisdom. Wisdom to live life well in this age. To live life well right now. He's gonna be called eternal, or sorry, mighty God. This kid is going to be mighty God. This kid is going to have power, might and power. This, this kid is going to be divine. He's gonna have the power of God. And what's the power of God going to be? The power of God is going to be such power that he is able to absorb all the evil of the world. His might and power is found in what we would describe as weakness, as absorbing it, as absorbing the evil. He's going to be called uh, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father. I love this. One scholar says, the fatherhood that is described here is a fatherhood that does not impose itself upon its children, but rather sacrifices itself for them eternally. I love that. He's our eternal father. The image of father in the Bible is one of a sacrificial love, not one of a self-serving pride. That's who this kid, remember, we're still talking about a kid here. Nowhere in Isaiah 9 does he say king, majestic ruler. I mean, he said, well, he does say ruler, but he doesn't say like king or adult. He says a kid is gonna be given to us. So he's a wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, and then finally, prince of peace. This is the climactic title. This is the last in the list, which means that it's all been building up to this moment. He is going to rule wholeness. He is going to rule and be in charge of this idea of fulfillment, of things functioning as they're designed to function, as people living as they're designed to live. 
This toddler, this son, will be in charge of it. Of all the internal chaos, of all the incompleteness and out of syncness of our lives, and finally, he will rule uh, wholly and completely, and there will be flourishing. Now, look at verse 7. The dominion will be vast, and its prosperity will never end. Its prosperity will never end. That word for prosperity is the word shalom, and the word shalom is the word peace. This dominion, this government that he is bringing about will never end. His peace will never end. I was thinking about, um, in the New Testament, it says faith, hope, and love remain, but the greatest of these is love. And I was thinking about why wasn't peace on that list? And the reason is this, because when Jesus returns, it will be just eternally present. We won't know what it's like to not have peace. And so therefore, the reason that peace is not on that list is because it'll just be there. And yes, love will be there and hope will be there, but love will be, love will be the character, love will be the character trait of everything, but peace will already just be present. So the government will be on his shoulders. He'll be the mighty God, the eternal father, the prince of peace, and this peace will never end. Earlier I mentioned Ephesians 2. What Paul says is that Jesus brings about this peace. And these two verses are gonna be on the screen because I think it's really, really important. Ephesians 2, 14 and 15 says this, for he, Jesus, is our peace. Remember, peace is this idea of wholeness, of flourishing, of completeness. He made both groups, Jew and Gentile, one, and he tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law why? So that he might create in himself one, excuse me, one new man from the two, resulting in peace. What is peace in this definition? It's wholeness. It's the two who are seemingly at relational odds with each other becoming one. It's the two who hate each other and the conflict and the turmoil becoming one. How? Through his death. He tore it down, resulting in peace. So the question for you is, is, do you have that peace? Do you have the peace such that no matter the circumstances of your life, everything seems unpeaceful? Do you have that peace that surpasses the ability to comprehend it? Have you experienced that peace? Do you feel as though you're living as a person for whom God's future shapes the present? Do you live as if the eternal reality of peace on earth is present in your life? If not, the initial response is the same as when Jesus preached the gospel, which was repent and believe the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's possible. Peace is possible. A steadiness, a wholeness, a completeness is possible. Just the other day, I was meeting with a friend whose grandpa got diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer a few months ago. And he went up and he visited them and he shared the gospel with them because the grandpa did not know the Lord. And he went back and he returned and he came and he said something was different about his grandpa in the few conversations. And his grandpa said, I, I've received the Lord. I've repented and I believe. A beautiful story of conversion. And one thing that he said is that he said, I wish I would have had this peace earlier. There's a man dying of stage four pancreatic cancer who has peace. That's not the definition of peace of our world, but that is the definition of biblical peace that Christ gives us. The invitation is the same. Repent and believe. If you've never experienced it or if you feel right now in this moment, you know you have experienced it before. 
you know that you have repented and believed before, but you're like, man, I, I just feel like my, my chin is barely above the water and I can't get a break at all. The invitation is the same. Repent and believe. And if that description is true of you, I have a few uh, questions I want to ask you, and we're going to enter into a time of reflection now in the few minutes we have left. But the first question I want to ask you is this. Where have you encountered peace? Where have you encountered peace? Sometimes it's easier to look at where we haven't encountered peace and forget to rejoice in the fact that we have encountered peace. Where have you encountered peace? The next question is this. Where do you need peace? Where, if you look at your life, do you see uh, incompleteness? Do you see a lack of wholeness, a lack of flourishing? Where do you need peace? Next question. Where are you feeling the absence of something and needing the presence of someone? Peace is this idea of absence, of things not being complete or not being whole. Where do you feel that? And then finally, ask the God of peace to fill you with himself. Uh, I'm gonna have Tori come up and start playing piano, and what I want to do is I wanna actually, if you are a Christian, I wanna invite you to take, to, just a second, to take the elements now, sit back down, and then take a few minutes, uh, 90 seconds, two minutes, something like that, and reflect on these with the elements in hand, and then after that time, I will come up and I'll lead us in communion and prayer. So I invite you now to stand up and take the elements. Thanks again for listening, and we pray this was a blessing to you. If you have any questions or comments about what you heard, our email is info at or you can find us on social media at Gospel. Thank you.